Ephesians chapter 3. And I just want to tell you, it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, every time I, I get in the pulpit to preach to Berean Baptist Church. And I thank the Lord for my church, and I thank the Lord for this study of Ephesians, because this has blessed me as I've gone through it. And I hope that there are some things that you have learned, and there are some things here that will draw you closer to the Lord. And we just thank the Lord for a great study that we have. We're studying this second powerful prayer in Ephesians, and the theme of the, of the portion that we're in right now is to know Christ. And I'm not speaking about knowing Christ in such a way that he's like a character in the book, or, or uh, knowing Christ like you, like you would learning a subject about math or geometry or things like that. I mean to use the word know like, like Paul uses it, and that is know is a relational word. And when Paul uses the word know, he talks about having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the subject is about knowing Christ, and the more that you know Christ, the more that you love him. And that's why I think it's important for all of God's people to avail yourself of every opportunity that you have to hear God's word. I I just think that we ought to do that. And it's not because I think my messages are so great, because I don't think that they are. But I do believe that if you listen very carefully, you won't go away ignorant of God's word. Now, this evening, I want to preach... Part number two of the message I began last week, to know him is to love him. And again, we're dealing with a a portion of scripture here where Paul is praying that the Ephesian elders might, or people rather, should come to know Christ in the way that he knows him. That's to know him better uh, in such a way that you really feel the presence of Christ living within you. Paul wrote this, he said, for to me to live is Christ. His whole life was consumed in knowing and working for Jesus Christ. And you know there's kind of a difference there in the way that you, when you talk about living for Christ in that scripture I just mentioned, about how you emphasize the word live. Because you could say, for me to live is Christ, or I live for Christ, or you can say, I live for Christ. And that's a little bit different meaning in the way that you accentuate it. And I think that Paul's probably means in the second way, I live for Christ. I mean, this is what I'm all about. It's doing what Christ wants me to do. Well, let's go to the scriptures and we're going to read the text verses for the message tonight. And we're going to look at verse number 17, start at verse 17. So if you stand with me, please, as we read just a f- three verses here, Ephesians chapter three, verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message that we're able to bring tonight. And Lord, just pray that you might use it to speak to someone's heart. Lord, help us to know you better. And by knowing you better, we come to love you better. So we just ask, Lord, that you would, you would just speak to our hearts through your word. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since this is part number two of the message, I'm going to continue the outline that I used last week. And so just very briefly, I want to review those first two points. And we began last week talking about the characteristics of love's knowledge. In verse number 18 of this text, Paul uses the word comprehend. And we understand by this that Paul means that beginning to know Christ is to, is to grasp the essential elements, the essential principles of what Christianity is all about and what Jesus is all about. 
And of course, that's a, that's a natural conclusion for us to come to. You could never understand the story of Jesus in the Bible if you don't give some kind of intellectual assent to actually what the story is all about. Uh, we have to note the facts of the story. I don't think there's anybody who, who is a Christian who ever claimed to be a Christian who didn't somehow know that Jesus came into the world, that Jesus lived a perfect life, and that Jesus went to the cross, that Jesus died. I mean, you couldn't be saved unless you know at least the essential facts of the story of Jesus. So we have to say that there are mental faculties that are involved in this. There's a mental process that takes place as you begin to assimilate all the information concerning Christ what the Bible has to say about him. But if we are to stop, if we stopped at that point, if we stopped at the mental processes and said that's all there is to Christianity, then there would never be a person who's saved because that's not a stopping point. James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 19, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And much of the religious world stops at this particular point. They stop at knowing the facts of Christianity, knowing the facts about Jesus, and they really don't intimately and personally know Christ himself. I remember when I was younger, my dad used to debate Campbellites people in the Church of Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with very many of those people, but they have a totally wrong idea about faith. And this is brought out when you begin to argue with them because they think that faith is just giving mental assent to facts. Well, certainly you do have to know and you have to believe the facts. Facts are our beginning point. The mental grasp of the facts is essential for anybody. But we have to move on just knowing facts. In order to be a Christian, you have to begin to experience the love of Christ. You've got to know Christ in your heart. You've got to have a relationship with, with him in that way. So experiencing Christ is when you know that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. That's to have the nature of Christ. It's, it's what we call having a new birth. And that's why we talk about the new birth as being born again. It's a totally different new relationship that you have with God. And it's not just knowing facts. Now, some of you may not agree with this statement I'm about to make, and that's okay because you have your political side and, and my ha- may have mine. I'm not trying to be political tonight. But yesterday we had elections, so this kind of brings this, this thought to my mind. And one of my, or I would say my favorite president was Ronald Reagan. And you may disagree with that. You may not like Ronald Reagan at all. But I like Ronald Reagan. And as far as I know from everything that I, that I could read about him and things that I heard him say, uh, that he was, he, he was somebody who, who was at least a very good moral person. A good moral person. I think you'd have to say that about him. He talked a lot about God and Christianity. But the sad thing about it is when, when Ronald Reagan was asked the question if he was a born-again Christian... He couldn't honestly answer and say, I even know what that means to be a born-again Christian. Now, folks, there is a difference between being Christian and being born-again Christian. And that's because the first one's not a Christian at all. You have to have this new birth, a supernatural miracle that takes place inside of you. I related, this is not part of my message, but while I'm on this thought, I I think some years ago I related this. Back in 1984... uh, I was able to, my dad and, and uh, my grandfather and I, we went to, um, went to Washington, D.C., and we went to a conference there where Ronald Reagan and, uh, at that time, the first President Bush were speaking. And Ronald Reagan got up in front of a crowd, which was really, it was a fundamental crowd. I mean, these were all fundamental Baptists, or most of them were fundamental Baptists that were there. And Ronald Reagan got up and started telling a story about a Jew, a Catholic, and a Protestant. 
Well, that was a totally the wrong crowd. He had no idea who he was talking to. Then George Bush got up to, to speak, and, and uh, actually he made a very good speech. But from understanding what the first George Bush uh, believed, he didn't either know anything about being a born-again Christian. So it's good to have Christian principles. It's good to have Christian morals. But that does not make you a born-again believer. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we talk about the experience of knowing Christ. And then we talked about the third part of that, and that was the surpassing characteristic of Christ's love. And Paul tells us that, that Christ's love passes knowledge. When you get into the Bible and you begin to read about Christ and you start to learn about him, you'll never get to the bottom of what Jesus is all about. I mean, you'll, you'll never understand all of it fully. Because there's always more to learn. And the Bible's that kind of book. You just keep going and going and going, and you keep learning more and more and more. Here we are. Tonight is sermon number 32 in the book of Ephesians. There could be 64. There could be 128. There could be hundreds and hundreds of sermons that come after this, and we'll never get to the bottom of just this one book, much less get to the bottom of the Word of God. And so to know Christ is to know Him in such a way that you just can't get enough of him. You'll never come to the place where you're able to say, I know Christ to the fullest. Nobody ever gets to that point. And here's the wonderful thing about that, because you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in Christ's love, and you experience more and more and more. And every depth marker that you pass on the way down, you are basking in the love of Christ. And that's a wonderful thing to know, that Christ is so deep, we can never touch the bottom. So we talked about the characteristics of love's knowledge. Then the second thing that we talked about was the claim of love's blessings. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time right here because I went through this extensively last week. But I just want you to remember uh, at least this part of it is that what God does and what God gives is entirely his prerogative. What God does in salvation is simply God's prerogative. And then what God gives us after salvation, all the blessings that he bestows are all at his discretion. And so, as I was speaking last last week, there aren't any guarantees that the Christian life is going to be be trouble-free. God doesn't say, here's the blessing that you're going to receive. You're never going to have trouble in your Christian life. Everything's going to be rosy. Everything will be just fine. But what do we find out by experience? That the most dedicated, pious of all Christians have experienced troubles. There, there's a lot of problems out there. And none less, no one less than the Apostle Paul had his own problems. One thing Brother Jack said to me a moment ago, he said, uh, he said are, you, are you feeling better? And I said, no, I'm really not doing too much better. And he said, well, remember the Apostle Paul, uh, he prayed three times and he wasn't healed. And I said, thanks, Jack. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to really think like that, you know. But uh, um, Paul had his problems. And he had problems on the outside with persecution, but he also had problems on the inside. He talked about the struggle that went on in his Christian life. And, and he, he addressed that as being spiritual warfare. He said, I'm in a battle. I'm in this constantly. And Paul said that I have to battle to subdue the passions of my flesh. And you remember the way that he put it? I beat my body to bring it into subjection. Of course, that's, a figure, that's figurative language, but that's what he had to do. He said, I have to beat my body to control the passions and everything that are in me. And so uh, it, it's not a strange thing. It's not an unusual thing for a Christian to have problems. Nobody's going to be immune to the attacks of the devil. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. 
Now, here's what Christians will sometimes do. They'll try to overanalyze the Christian life. They overanalyze what it means to living like a Christian. And because they get tempted over something, or because they have their down days, and they think that something must be missing in their lives. Well, that doesn't mean that something's missing. If, if you don't go to work every day skipping and hopping and jumping and singing like you're just the happiest person in the world, that's not an unusual thing. That's, it's really not. If you do go skipping and jumping and happy to work every single day, then it's because the devil's not bothering you. And if he's not bothering you, there must be a reason. And probably is you're not much danger to him. Your Christian life, really, you're not standing out for Christ. And so you probably won't have problems when you're like that. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying here because I'm not saying that the only way that you can be closer to God is if you're miserable. I don't mean that at all. But what I do mean is that you can be happy in your Christian life no matter how many trials and tribulations are there. It, it, you can still be happy. Now, when you have misery... And there's some people like this. When you have misery as your badge of Christianity, then you really do have a problem because Christians are not miserable. They may be persecuted and they may have troubles. They may be down some days, but they're not miserable, not like a lost person is. Well, I need to go on. So let's consider something new tonight. And this is the third point of the message. We have the characteristics of love's knowledge. We have the claim of love's blessings. And now thirdly, we have the confirmation of love's presence. Now, this is a very important part, and you need to hear everything I'm going to say tonight. And that is because when Christ saves you, he gives you eternal life, and he wants you to have assurance of it. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. And when we talk about being miserable, the only time that a Christian really becomes miserable is when he loses his assurance in Christ. Your salvation cannot be lost, but your assurance can be. And many times Christians experience the loss of their assurance. When the Apostle John was writing to first century Christians, he knew that this was a problem. He knew that they were having struggles with their assurance. I mean, there was all these things that were going on around them. When there's trouble everywhere and it seems that you can't find God and and you're wondering what is God doing and why has this problem come, you can start to lose, lose your assurance. And so John wrote the epistle of 1 John to build up his converts in the faith. And to let them know that you can know that Christ loved you. And you can be assured of Christ's love. And so he spent the first four chapters of 1 John dealing with issues of obedience and, and talking about uh, being tested in your Christian life and about the action of being a Christian. And then he came down to the fifth chapter and he wrote in 1 John chapter 5, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And I think Paul's doing a similar thing right here in Ephesians chapter 3. Look back up at verse number 13. He says, Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, he writes that because if they focus on his trials and the difficulty he's having and they focus on their own problems, he knows that Christians are going to lose, these Ephesians are going to lose their assurance. And so that's why Paul launches into this powerful prayer and he talks about strengthening the inner man. He speaks about Christ indwelling your heart by faith. He talks about being rooted and grounded in God's love. He talks about the dimensions of Christ's love and he talks about the fullness of God. And he writes all of those things for the issue of assurance. 
that you might know that you're a Christian. You might know that Christ's love is in you. Now, that needs to be confirmed in every Christian. You have to have confirmation of this in order to have assurance. So that's what I want to talk about next. I want to talk about how do you get the confirmation? and In what areas does confirmation come? Well, first of all, we need to look at the power of the Word. If you want confirmation and you want confidence, it's the Word that has the power to put your mind at ease. Now, why has God given us a Bible? He's given that to us in order to reveal himself. The Bible reveals God. Through the message of Christ, the Bible reveals God. Now, if you begin to understand what this world is all about, wonder why this happens, that happens, the place to go is the Word of God because that's where we find the answers. But unfortunately, most Christians don't do the most basic, essential thing of going to the Word of God. I mean, do you wonder today why Christianity is, is so superficial? Why do we have all these superficial Christians? It's because at the very foundation of it all, the Word of God is not read, it's not taught, it's not believed, and it's not preached. Most churches today don't spend time in the Word of God. And I'll tell you something, folks. If you go to church and and the preacher stands up in the pulpit and he pulls out anything other than the Word of God, you've got problems. You you don't want anything but the Word of God. The Bible is the source book. Now, the preacher's messages have to come from the Bible. And if they don't come from the Bible, then the weakness starts to take over. The sheep can't stand unless you feed them the right thing. Now, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with highlighting a message or highlighting the Bible with certain kinds of illustrations. We do that all the time as we're preaching. But if the sermon is nothing but an illustration... And all the sermon does is move from illustration to illustration, then you've got problems. Sometime or another, you have got to get back to the Word itself. The Word has to be preached. Why? Because it brings confirmation. It brings confidence. And nothing does it like the Word of God. So, so why would a Christian ever want to ignore God's Word? But we, I don't want to stop there with that. I, I mean, I don't want to stop with the messages that you hear and coming to church and listening to me preach. To have assurance, you have to get into the Word yourself. And if you're in a church or you have a preacher who does not encourage personal reading and discussion of God's Word, you ought not to be in that church. You need to read the Word of God for yourself. So a preacher's not your friend if he discourages open discussion of the Bible. But here's what I don't mean for you. I don't mean for you just to read the Bible. Now, some of you can sit down and you can read the Bible. It's just like turning on a machine. I mean, you go and you go and you go and you go, and then when you're ready to turn it off, you just turn it off. You stop reading. And you walk away from that, and you think, well, I've done my Christian duty today. I'm supposed to read the Bible, so I read the Bible. And, and that's all that you did. You've done the daily Bible reading, so now I'm holy and I'm pious. I've reached my obligation. But what you read didn't mean anything to you. It didn't mean anything. It didn't touch you. The Word of God didn't teach you. You know, I remember when I was younger in Sunday school, the, the Sunday school teacher would always encourage us to read as many chapters in the Bible as you can. And so we would go home and, and we would struggle and we would struggle and we would struggle and we would read those chapters. I mean, we would read chapters and chapters and chapters and then the next Sunday we could come in and raise our hands and report. We actually had a report that said, how many chapters did you read this week? And so we all raised our hands and said, yeah, we read our chapters but in the end, there wasn't anything accomplished. 
because it didn't mean anything to it. This is not what it's about. You see, you can read maybe only one chapter in the Bible a week. You may only read just a few verses in the Bible a week. But if you stay in that and you do it right, that's going to mean more to you than reading ten books of the Bible. Now, what do I mean by reading the Bible right? I mean that when you sit down to read the Scriptures, that you take every bit of intelligence, every bit of focus, every bit of attention that you can, and you put it into your reading. You take every bit of concentration that you can possibly muster, and you put it into reading the Word of God. And you know when you've done that, you still don't have enough. That's not enough in itself to concentrate and and to apply yourself. That's not enough. You have to have the Holy Spirit's guidance. And so you have to also pray that God's Spirit would guide you and that he would illuminate this text. Make the Word of God speak to me. Open it up to me. If you don't, then the words of the Bible are just words on a page, and and that's all they are. And what will happen is that your Bible reading becomes tedious. And you really don't want to read the Bible. I mean, it's like going having your teeth pulled. You just don't want to do it. And many Christians are stuck there because they haven't put the concentration in first and they haven't asked the Spirit to guide them in what they read. Folks, there is no book that you could ever read that requires as much attention, as much focus as the Word of God. There is nothing that you can read that requires as much as that. You know why? The Bible's a living book. The Bible is a book that speaks to you. And when it speaks to you personally, what does it do? It confirms your faith in Christ. It confirms the knowledge of Christ's love. Now, if you ask ask me, how do I know that I'm saved? How could I really get close to Jesus? I would tell you, get into the Word of God. There's a place of confirmation in the Word of God. You get confidence and strength from reading God's Word. And that's when you put all of your faculties, all of your energy as you're reading, all your concentration into it, and ask God's Spirit to guide you. Well, where else do you get confirmation? Well, next, we get it from the prayer of the heart. Now, here's another erroneous teaching of many preachers. Preachers will teach you that you can stimulate stimulate your prayer life by having regular times to pray. Just set a timetable and you pray at a specific time and you make sure you don't miss the prayer time. Now hear me out on this before you go ballistic because I know some of you are scratching your head. What what is he talking about now? What I'm saying is if you have a problem getting into regular prayer, then setting a prayer time is a good way for you to get started. But just setting the prayer time is not enough for you. Because when you get regular in your prayer time, you've got to watch out that your prayers don't just become ritual. And prayers don't become just an exercise by rote. Someone wrote me a, a note the other day and said, How can I experience the freedom of the Spirit? And I would say that if your prayer time is, is made into a ritual, and if your timetable for praying is more important than your prayer itself, then you actually become bound by the timetable. And there is no freedom in Christ in prayer that way. Now, it's just like Bible reading. If Bible reading becomes just a habit, then you come to the place that you don't enjoy it. And if prayer time is just a habit, you're not going to enjoy prayer time. So what do you do? Well, you don't march into your prayer time just because you looked at your watch and say, oh, it's prayer time. Now I've got to go pray. You won't be successful in your prayers like that. Because you have to be prepared. You have to be already thinking about what you're going to pray about and what you're going to ask for. 
If I call somebody into a meeting in my office, and, and, or, or I set up a time, let's say, to call somebody in my office and we're going to have a meeting, I don't set the time up and then just forget about it. And then when they show up, think of something I'm going to say. I have a purpose for the meeting and I have an agenda for the meeting. And that's the way it is with our prayer with God. You, you, you don't just set up an appointment according to your timetable and then you start praying without considering what to talk about. Now, of course, there are times when prayer is to be spontaneous. You, we, we need spontaneous prayers. But if you also don't have a prayer time where you have carefully considered what you're bringing to God and you know what you're going to talk about, then your prayer is going to be as sloppy as going to see the boss without your notes. Now, along with that, you also need to do this. When you pray, you need to examine yourself. When you go into a meeting with your boss, you, you men, you, you don't go in with your tie pulled down, and you don't go with your shirt tail hanging out and the buttons unbuttoned. And ladies, you don't go into a meeting with the boss with your hair stuck up all over the place and a lipstick run across your cheeks. You make sure that you've got things right and you're, you're, you're prepared as you go in. And that's the same way it is with God. You've got to examine yourself. And putting yourself in order for prayer means that you have acknowledged when you've sinned. And you want to get this right with God. You know when you've sinned and you have confessed your sin. So you get that out of the way before you get into your petitions. And then when you pray to God, you also need to acknowledge your gratefulness to him. Now, there's nobody who, who likes to uh, keep giving and giving and giving to someone when there is no sense of appreciation. And God's the same way. When you appreciate, when you pray, be thankful. Appreciate God for what he's done. Now, here's a third way to get confirmation, and that is the pleasing of the Savior. And if you're a person who never considers pleasing Christ, then you're not going to find assurance when you love somebody, you want to please them, don't you? And the more that you please the person that you love, the more that that person shows you back that they love you. And it works that way with God. When, when you, or, or with Jesus, when, when, you, when you please him, when you do his, keep his commandments, when you do what he says to do, then he'll come back to you with a confirmation of his love. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he that hath my commandments and keepeth, keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, listen, and will manifest myself to him. You see what Jesus is saying? When you prove your love for Christ for doing what he says, it pleases him. And when you please Christ, you please the Father. And when the Father is pleased, Jesus is also pleased, and Jesus lets you know that he's pleased. So it, it works all, it's a big circle here. Pleasing Jesus pleases the Father, pleases the Father. When you're pleasing him, pleases Jesus again. And then Jesus confirms that you've pleased him, and he gives you the confirmation of his love. Now, if you want to know Christ's love, and you want to experience Christ's love, you're going to find it partially and largely, I should say maybe, in obedience. How do you obey? If you're obedient, then, then does Christ not love you? Well, of course Christ loves you. I mean, if you're a Christian, and if you're a child of God, God loves you unconditionally. But will you know that he loves you? And will you feel that he loves you? That's a whole different question, isn't it? You get the confirmation, 
by his obedience. You know, or by your obedience. Now, everybody knows what, when you're a child what happens when you, when you don't obey. When, when your mom told you, do this, and you didn't do this, and, and she swatted you on the behind, maybe she didn't do that, but she should have, and she swatted you on the behind and sent you to bed without your supper, what did you think right then? I mean, what, what did you think when you were in the middle of disobedience and your mom whips you and sends you to your room? You think, wow, my mom loves me. <laughs> no, you don't. You think my mom hates me. And you're thinking all kinds of thoughts in your head. I mean, you're pouting there and you're sitting there and you're thinking, my mother hates me. She doesn't love me anymore. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to crawl out the window. I'm going to run away from home. The same thing's true with God. When you disobey him, God takes out the switch and God spanks you. And when you're in the middle of the chastisement, what are you thinking? Well, first, that hurts. I don't, I don't like that. Chapter 12 in Hebrews says, if ye, this is verse 7, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? And that simply means if you are a child of God, he's going to treat you like his child. So when you disobey, he's going to whip you. But listen to what he says in verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Isn't that what I just said? Well, there, when the chastening's going on, it hurts. It's grievous. And it's not until it's over do you understand how much God loves you. I mean, you don't, you don't come to that realization. When you're in the middle of chastisement, the only thing that you can think of is how angry you are at God. And it's not until he breaks you down that you start to realize how much that Christ really loves you. So here's my point again. Disobedience brings chastisement. And along with that, there's this automatic first feeling that comes. When you're in chastisement, what is God doing? God doesn't love me. But when you're obedient to the Lord, that's when he shows you very plainly that he loves you. And you don't get all these mixed emotions that you have at other times. When you're disobedient, you know that Christ loves you and your obedience is a vehicle by which Christ can show you that he loves you. So here's what you need to do. You need to learn the things that God hates, the things that God simply can't stomach, and you find those out by reading God's word. And as you find that out, stay away from all of those things. Just obey the Lord. Because if you keep trying the Lord's patience, you can't expect to get manifestations of his love. So you need that kind of confirmation. But then there's a fourth confirmation that we get. And this is the persistence of the saints. And maybe I could state it this way. The expectation of God's people. The persistence in believing that God's going to bless. You see, if you're a true child of God, you have experienced this. You learn by experience that Christ loves you and everything that happens in your life is going to somehow work out for your good. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? So you have a persistence in this. You have an expectation of what God's going to do for you. Now, here's the problem, though, and that sometimes we become so ritualistic with our Bible reading and so ritualistic in our prayer life that when God sends a blessing, it goes right on by us. We didn't even see it. I mean, we didn't even realize that God sent a blessing our way. Let me describe it to you this way. God does not always open up the windows of heaven and pour down a boatload of blessings on you. He very, most of the time, does, just doesn't work that way. God doesn't say to you, now, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy you 
a diamond pendant that, that's cut to perfection. And I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to show you that I love you. He's, Here's how much I love you. I'm going to give you this. And that's what many Christians expect. They, they don't see the blessing unless they get one huge whopping gift all at one time. And now they understand all of a sudden that Christ loves them. That's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way in your family, does it? Does, that work, does it work that way in, in your relationships? You know, I, I could tell you this. If I had to prove to my wife that I loved her by doing this, I'd go to Jason and I'd say, Jason, I need the biggest diamond you've got in the store. I mean, I need the one that has no flaws, no imperfections. It's, it's clear or not clear. I don't know anything about diamonds, but maybe it's a good thing or not a good thing. But the very best diamond that you absolutely have. I need the one with the perfect color because my wife needs to know that I love her. You know something? She would never know that I love her because I can't afford to do that. I can't go get her that big diamond ring. And you know what I've also learned? My wife doesn't expect that. That's not what she's expecting. And and the truth be told, if that's what I did to try to prove to her that I love her, she wouldn't buy it. She wouldn't believe it. That's not proof. Now, all of you men want to know what a good wife is. You just look at my wife right here. Because she does not crazy about jewelry. She doesn't care about that. And so what she says to me a lot of times, she says, it's not what you give me. It's the way you touch me. It's the way that you look at me. It's those kinds of things. And I say, well, amen, that doesn't cost me a dime. I mean, I prefer it that way. But I understand that. And, and sometimes, folks, it's just the way that God touches you. It's the way that God looks at you. You ever been singing a song and, and just all of a sudden, I mean, talking about a gospel song, and all of a sudden you get, just get choked up as you're singing? You know what that is? That's God saying, I love you. That, that's letting him, that, that's how he's confirming that he loves you. I remember when I, when I was leading the singing, I mean, this, this would happen sometimes. I mean, I, w- I would get up to sing a song, maybe a song I've, you know, I've known all these songs all my life. I mean, I've been singing since I'm a little kid. And all of a sudden, man, that thing just hits you. And the words just all of a sudden take on a special meaning at that particular time. And, and you break out in tears. That's God saying, I love you. Back in September, my wife, um, uh, when Clarice was ready to have the baby, she flew down to San Diego, and and I drove down later. And so I put these um, CDs in my car, gospel CDs, and and I I don't listen to anything but gospel music. But I put these CDs in my car, and, you know, I think people thought I was crazy part of the time. I was driving around 405 in L.A. crying like a baby. What's the matter with that guy, you know? There's a former member of the church one time that told me this. He, He said, I don't... I don't uh, really get too much out of your sermons because you're not emotional. You're not very emotional. And uh, I, I explained to him that, well, the reason that I'm not emotional is because I go over the sermons, I mean, over and over and over again before I ever get into the pulpit to preach them. Sometimes they don't sound like it, but I'm thinking about that. I'm going over those sermons all of the time. And, and by the time that I get up to preach them, most of the emotion, at least that kind of emotion, has gone out. But I'll tell you this, I can be sitting there, sit down and writing a sermon and at the moment that I'm doing it, I can sit there, I write them on the computer, and I can look at it, and I can't see the screen. And what is that? Tears that come because God's saying, I love you. And he's letting you know in those kinds of ways. Now, let me go back to my wife for just a minute, and, and I hope she, she doesn't mind me using her as an example. But there was a time in our marriage when, when I was consumed with two things, work and church. Now she says you're consumed with one thing, that's just church. But, you know, 
we were having a rocky period of our, of our, of our marriage right at, right at those times. I mean, everybody has arguments in your marriage, and if, I think you do anyway. If you have a normal marriage, you have arguments, and there's some rough, rough, rough going part of the time. And quite honestly, some of those problems that we have were, was because I did not consider her feelings. And so we were having an argument one time, and I said, you know that I love you because I bought this house. And I've bought those cars that are in the garage. And the kids, I send the kids to private school. And everybody in this household has everything that they want. And that was true because there was a time when I used to have money. And and there was a time that we could have just about anything that we wanted. And so I was telling the truth. But she told me, she said, that's not the way that you prove your love to me. How about spending some time with me? Now, folks, there's the problem, you see. We're, we're waiting for God to give us something big. We're waiting for that big diamond ring to come along. We're waiting for the BMW to be put in the garage. And all the time, God's been showing his love. He, he, he's been showing it all the time. It's in his touch. It's in the wink of his eye. And God just says simply, spend some time with me and you'll know it. So what we have to do as Christians, we have to expect the blessing. And we get the confirmation by expecting the blessing and not missing it when it comes. We need to recognize it. Now I want to close with this last thought in consideration of this subject. To know him is to love him. And your last thought for the message is open your eyes, your ears, and your heart and don't miss his love. I like what one writer said about this. He was quoting Jesus' words in Revelation 3, verse 20, same scripture that we ended with last week. And he quoted those words. He said, behold, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And this writer said, God forbid that when he knocks, there is so much noise in the house of our souls that we don't hear him. Be sensitive to the Savior. Listen for him. Look for him, and God will confirm his love to you. To know him is to love him. The more that you know about him, the more that you'll love Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about, expecting the blessing from him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word and for the opportunity we have to bring it to your people. Lord, uh, our efforts sometimes are, are so meager And we can't always get across exactly what we feel and what we want to say. But Lord, I just pray that you would fulfill your promise that the Holy Spirit can come into our hearts and he can witness with us in groanings that cannot be uttered. Lord, you know our hearts tonight. We just pray that you draw your people close to you and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.